Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. We spent a little time talking about the Battle of Guadalcanal, and I'd actually planned on hitting a few more stories there, but got pulled away for a bit and thought that might serve as a good transition into a new area. So we're going to stick with World War II, but move back over to Europe and spend a little bit of time talking about Germany's last-ditch effort to win the war, the Battle of the Bulge. To get that started today, we have the story of Technical Sergeant Vernon McGarity of Lima Company, part of the 393rd Infantry Regiment of the 99th Infantry Division, one of the first units to see combat in that fight. Now, This is a major battle here, the Battle of the Bulge, one of the largest in American military history. So we're going to provide a little context in this episode and hopefully can dial into a little more specifics in later shows. The German situation in winter of 1944 is not looking good. They are losing ground rapidly in the East. You know, there was a point where Germany was on the offensive against the Soviet Union, but that day has come and gone. At this point, you know, November, December 1944, the Red Army looks unstoppable. In the West, it's not looking that much better for Germany after the Normandy landings in June of 1944. The Western Allies have moved pretty quickly across Europe, retaken much of France, Belgium, and they really sit on Germany's Western border. To all parties involved and and some not involved, it looks like the writing's on the wall. Germany's on the brink of defeat. It's just going to be a matter of time. But maybe not. Maybe Germany hasn't quite played all of their cards. At least that's Hitler's thinking. Hitler starts putting together an operation known as Watch on the Rhine. And it's intentionally deceptive. That kind of sounds like a defensive operation. They're going to hold the line at the Rhine, at the German border, just in case the Allies were to intercept some of the messages and they catch that part. That doesn't sound like a massive counteroffensive, right? This watch on the Rhine would come to be known by a few different names, the Ardennes Offensive, and as we often refer to it in the United States, the Battle of the Bulge. Now, at a high level, the Battle of the Bulge was the German plan to build up in the Ardennes Forest, which borders Germany, France, and Belgium. Incredibly thick forest there that can hide units as they build up for an offensive. And Germany was to, you know, think Blitzkrieg back to 1939, 1940, 1941, rapid, armored, mechanized advances through the Allied lines with a goal of seizing the port of Antwerp. The port was being used by Allies at this time. It was a strategic resource, strategic location. And Hitler's thoughts at a high level, and it's not crazy, is if he could do this, seize you know one of our few major port facilities that's really being used, and cut the Allies in half as he does so, that might force the Western allies to sue for peace, and Hitler can then focus exclusively on the threat to their east. Again, it's not, it's not a crazy idea. At, at this point in the war, Hitler views you know, the UK, the United States, Canada, the Western allies as being the weaker of the two enemies he faces. I mean, they have, they're getting chewed up on the Eastern front. So given the option, he's going to try to knock Western allies out of the war, focus on the Red Army. Now, again, at a high level, it's not crazy, but his generals 
don't think, maybe know that it can't work. The term I saw thrown around was when Hitler unveiled this plan, the generals were astonished. Like, what is this guy thinking? And this was a common theme in, in the German military in World War II, but you can see why. The common theme being Hitler regularly thought his military was more capable than they were. And I think a part of that has to do with early success. Think to the, the beginning of World War II, the, the German military looked completely unstoppable. I mean, how just a couple of weeks to topple France that they couldn't, they couldn't accomplish that in four years in the First World War, right? So it's not crazy that that idea of an almost invincible military is fueled on Hitler's belief or, and when, when Hitler's putting this plan together. It's just not feasible at this point in the war. The German military is low on resources, on manpower. They're fighting, you know, we always say a two-front war, but we can't forget that there's a lot of German military resources tied up in Italy as well. I mean, so we can call it a three-front war. Add to that the fuel reserves. Germany doesn't have the necessary fuel to even make it all the way to Antwerp. So on paper, this thing looks good, but part of the German plan, as the generals start diving into it and actually making it a little more realistic, is they not only have to break through the Allied lines, they have to seize Allied fuel depots along the way, or they'll run out of fuel. Think about that. I mean, this is, when you talk about a last ditch effort, that's it right there. Now, Germany has some advantages in this plan. The allied lines, you know, an interesting way to look at this is from June 6th to this point, the allied lines have gotten wider. We now have a front line across half of Western Europe. The German lines are shorter. They're kind of just on their border. Germany is no longer protecting the entire Atlantic wall. So they can afford to build up concentrations in short areas. You have the supply question. As the allies get further and further from the coast, it becomes harder and harder to resupply the front. And the military can't move without ammunition and, and resupply of soldiers, reinforcements. I mean, Germany has the opposite problem. As they retreat and move closer and closer to their border, they're closer to their resupply. They're closer to their hospitals. They're closer to their reinforcements. It's easier for them to move troops from the Eastern front to the Western front than it is to move them all the way across France to the Atlantic wall, right? Finally, another major issue that's helping Germany or a couple major issues helping Germany in this watch on the Rhine operation that plays in their favor is the terrain and the weather. The Ardennes is seen as an unreasonable attack corridor. We're not going to be able to, the allies are looking at that and saying Germany's not going to be able to put a sizable force through that forest. There's, there's just not a lot of roads that lead through it. And it's so thick that you can't really go off the roads. You're not going to make any progress. On top of that, while the allies at this point in the war had air superiority and could do a pretty good job of detecting enemy troop movements and buildups in certain areas, there was a lot of low cloud cover throughout the months of November and December in 1944 and really prevented Allied aircraft from watching the German buildup in the Ardennes. Now, all of that put together means that by December of 1944, Germany has pretty completely achieved the element of surprise for this offensive. Not entirely. There are a couple Americans, a couple um, within the Allied forces, I should say, that see something coming. And I think it was... Um, General Marshall, that fam not General Marshall, General Bradley that heard about this and famously said, let him come. I just don't think anybody really believed it. Now, by December 16th, 
the morning of December 16th, Germany decides to kick off this operation, watch on the Rhine. And the reason for that date is they expect a Red Army offensive later, maybe around the 20th of December, but at least later in the month. And Hitler thinks if we can kick this thing off and see success early, Stalin might pause. He might hold on that offensive until he sees how this one plays out. Also, Hitler, given the option, doesn't want to have these two major offensives, you know, on the receiving end on one end and giving it on the other at the same time, if at all possible. So early in the morning on December 16th, 1944, the operation is set to kick off. The night before, there was a pretty serious snowstorm. Temperatures dropped down around 10 degrees. And the Allied soldiers are all outside in this. I mean, the German soldiers too. Everybody's outside in this. But think about that. 10 degrees. You don't have giant, you know, warming huts to keep everybody from freezing. There's even the best of cold weather gear at this time pales in comparison to what we have today. And how long do you want to spend outside in 10 degree weather? Days, weeks, you know, it's just miserable. But these guys, it's not like they're just camping and they get to get up one day and go home. On both sides, in that 10 degree weather on 16 December, they're on the verge of being in the fight for their lives. It's hard to imagine. Eventually that morning, December 16th, 1944, the Germans kick off the attack with an artillery barrage. It's about 90 minutes long, and it stretches widely across the line, 80 to 100 miles across the line. Kind of makes you think back to World War I. And as the fire lifted, the attack kicks off. The Germans start to advance. At this point, right at the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge, Germany has you know, a lot of advantages. And one of those is also in manpower and equipment. The battle kicks off. It's a wide front, remember? So these numbers, we're going to make them, they're a little gray is the way to put this. But as the attack kicks off, the Watch on the Rhine or the Battle of the Bulge, the Ardennes Offensive, Germany is attacking with about 400,000 troops against the Allies, roughly 230,000. Germany has about 550 tanks to the Allies, 480. And in terms of anti-tank weapons and field artillery cannons, Germany outnumbers the United or the, the Allies about two to one. 4,100 to 2,400. Again, there's a lot going in Germany's favor, but they have to go fast. Part of Hitler's plan was to get to Antwerp in four days. They didn't have a lot of time to spare. They had to stay on schedule. Another note here when it comes to all of that equipment is this is Germany's kind of last-ditch effort. They're putting everything into this. The Allies are still bringing men into the fight. There are still divisions that haven't fought yet being brought up to the front lines. So this is everything Germany's got. And it's a snapshot of what the Allies have. Now, one of the main avenues of attack comes along what's known as the Northern Shoulder. This is the most direct route from the German lines to the port of Antwerp. And Hitler determines the units. I mean, he gets in the weeds way more than he should, right? Hitler determines the units that are going to be a part of of that advance because he deems that to be the most likely to succeed, the most important of the entire operation. But this northern shoulder includes a town called Krinkelt in Belgium. It's about three miles from the German border. And that's exactly where Tech Sergeant Vernon McGarity and the men of the 3rd Battalion, 393rd Infantry Regiment, were dug in. Now, McGarity and his men of the 99th Infantry are new to combat, generally speaking. I mean, they've seen a little bit, but this is one of the challenges when you're looking at, again, another German advantage to attacking in this area that was seen as definitely not going to be the area of attack. 
the allies were using a lot of this sector for a couple purposes, brand new troops like the 99th infantry division, um, rather than throwing them into, you know, an expected, an expected area of attack for the Germans, as well as troops that are recuperating have maybe been on the front lines for weeks or even months on end. They move them over here, move into the, uh, just sit on this side of the Ardennes for a little while. That's quiet. Nothing's going to happen there. So that's exactly who is on the receiving end of this German counterattack. But we'll call it a counterattack. German counterattack on 16 December. McGarity is wounded in the initial artillery barrage. It was pretty substantial. Again, 90 minutes over this wide front. He moves back to an aid station, just kind of standard procedure there, but starts to realize this is more than just a few artillery shells coming in and gets quickly, you know, treated. But instead of being evacuated as is recommended, he makes his way right back to his front lines because he's seen this attack start to materialize. This initial artillery barrage cuts communications pretty quickly with a lot of units, McGarity's included. And before long, as the German attackers exit the forest and approach McGarity's position, they're outnumbered five to one. I mean, again, this is one of the focus areas of the attack. It's not as though the Germans attacked with the exact same forces all up and down the line. There are certain areas that they really hammered home. They're trying to punch through the lines all the way to Antwerp. McGarity and his men hold during that initial assault. Again, he's wounded. They hold the line, expecting reinforcements at any time. Messages have been sent. Runners have been sent. They understand this attack's underway. But they repel the first attack as the lines are kind of splintered. So one of the issues in the Battle of Bulge, and we'll get to this in later episodes, is in some areas the Germans broke through. In others, they didn't. In some, they were able to encircle American troops. In others, they were pushed back. There's fighting going on in every direction. So by the end of the day, McGarity is running around reorganizing his men, taking the wounded and, and the killed and the destroyed positions and tying them together, knowing this isn't the end. There's another attack coming. Of course, as the sun comes up and they can see a little better, he notices one of his men a little ways out from the lines, a little too close to where the Germans are expected to attack again on the 17th. So he runs out into enemy fire to bring that soldier back into friendly lines and get treatment. Now, the next morning, after bringing that soldier back into the lines, they start to see another attack materialize. And this one is going to be not just infantry, but German tanks as well. There's four German tanks in this next assault. McGarity grabs a bazooka, an anti-tank rocket launcher, but it has to be fired at close range. This isn't something you can fire from 200 meters away. Realistically, he needs to be well inside of 100 meters. And there's only a couple places on a tank that he can hit for it to even be effective. McGarity uses the terrain to his advantage, finds a spot where the tank is going to cross by at relatively close range, and as it does, he opens fire with the bazooka. Destroys the one tank in the lead, kind of jamming the road that the tank was on, and at that same time, he has all of his men open fire, small arms fire, machine guns and rifles for the most part, against the infantry that are charging at the same time. That unexpected barrage that the Germans run into forces or causes a little bit of chaos. The three remaining tanks that are going up against essentially McGarity and his men dug in, infantry, tanks against infantry, turn and retreat. There's quite a few, they inflict quite a few casualties on that small group. And McGarity survives, moves back, and ties in with his men. But by this point, they're starting to run low on ammunition. I mean, there's not 
that many of them, and there's a lot of Germans in every one of these waves. McGarity recognizes this and knows that there's a supply dump, ammunition dump nearby. But again, as these lines are splintered, it's no longer so it's no longer as easy as just move to the rear a little bit. There's Germans in almost every direction. So to get to the supply point, to get to the ammunition dump, McGarity has to run again through enemy fire, about 100 yards. He gets to that position, loads up with as much ammunition as he can, moves back, redistributes it amongst his men so they can continue to hold that line. Again, they don't have communications with any higher-ups. They don't know if reinforcements are coming. The last thing they heard, the last message McGarity got over the radio was hold at all costs, and that's what he's going to do. But as the Germans are making progress in every direction, they're quickly at risk of being cut off, being surrounded. In fact, after McGarity moves the ammunition back to his men, he notices a German machine gun moving around kind of behind their position. Again, speaks to how splintered the lines are. Now, McGarity and his men don't have you know, any intentions of retreating, but you also don't want to be surrounded by enemy fire. So without hesitation, McGarity assaults forward. Slowly but surely until he gets into a position where he can lay down fire on this German machine gun position. He quickly kills the two or three manning the machine gun and stays in a position where he can watch that position, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want anybody to come back up and reoccupy the gun that's now been in place. So he stays there firing on the machine gun position for any German soldiers that come up and try to man it for some time. Before long, again, this isn't a movie. This isn't a video game. You run out of ammunition quickly without resupply and without any reinforcements coming up. And later that day, McGarity and his men fire their last shot, are overrun and captured by the advancing Germans. But remember, for this whole thing to be a success, Germany had to keep on a pretty strict timeline. They couldn't afford holdups. McGarity and his men holding the line as long as they did against all odds, against the tanks, started the overall process of frustrating the German plan, causing the entire thing to fall apart. It was little actions like this, little actions by infantrymen in trenches with a bazooka sometimes, a machine gun, others, that would be the cause for the entire attack and the big picture to fall apart. Now, after being captured, McGarity was taken to a prisoner of war camp where he was held for about four months before he was liberated as the American forces pushed into Germany and liberated the camp. He would survive the war, and on December 18, 1945, almost exactly a year after his actions, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for what he did during the opening minutes of the Battle of the Bulge. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.